0: Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. And thanks for giving us a listen. This is episode number four of The Next Track. Today, Kirk and I are pleased to welcome our first ever guest to The Next Track, Andy Doe. Andy is someone
1: who has worked in digital music and classical music for a long time. Andy, could you present yourself to our listeners and explain exactly what you do?
2: Sure thing. Uh, I run a label. I work for a metadata company. I consult for a lot of big artists within classical music. And uh, I do this towards the end of a long career in digital music that includes working at iTunes, working at a big label, working at a little label, working at a bunch of startups.
0: We asked Andy to join us for a discussion about metadata and music files which we'll get to shortly but first
1: first we want to talk about some streaming shenanigans an interesting article popped up in a magazine called fact well a website magazine called fact and it's entitled now we have a clean rating on itunes so i'm going to have to censor out a word from the title of the article Um, albums are getting unbearably long in 2016 and bs new streaming rules are to blame And the article explains that a number of recent popular releases are very long. Drake's latest album has 20 tracks lasting 82 minutes. And in the article, they're pointing out a number of reasons for this. I think one of them is that when a popular album like this comes out, people will stream the entire album, even though, as we talked in, in our first episode, people are more likely to go for songs. But the first few times when the new Drake album comes out, I'm guessing Drake fans streamed the album over and over. So instead of getting 10 streams for album, he's getting 20 streams, making twice as much money. Um, the other interesting point was that rules in the US by the RIAA, that's the Recording Industry Association of America allow an artist to put a previously released track on an album and count all of its streams toward that album. So essentially, one of these Drake songs had been streamed 400 million times on Spotify and 700 million times on YouTube. And that means that as soon as the album was released, it went platinum.
2: Andy, what is going on here? Well, I think this is the latest in a long line of shenanigans designed to exploit loopholes in the rules around uh, music promotion. I think it's very easy to think that the BS is a new thing, when in fact we've been doing this for years. Um, When you join the BPI, which is the British Phonographic Industries, the English version of the RAAA, they make you sign a form saying that you promise not to attempt to manipulate the charts. When in fact, all we've been doing for years in music marketing is attempt to manipulate the charts.
1: Wouldn't it be fair to say that even trying to get radio play for a song is manipulating the charts in some way? So it seems that 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 little form you signed there, it's pretty hard to enforce.
2: Absolutely. The, The whole process of releasing single, single, single album is intended to manipulate the charts. It's designed to front load all of your sales in a, in a short period of time to give, get you the best possible opening chart position. Pre-orders are the same thing.
1: Because pre-orders get counted when? On the date that the album's released.
2: Absolutely. So you can, you can combine two months worth of sales on a single day.
1: And so that's why you see a lot of albums released as pre-orders on iTunes, where you get to download one track, because otherwise people wouldn't pre-order it. If they were just putting up the money for nothing, that one track is enough to incite them to pre-order an album.
2: Absolutely. And it's a strange idea to think that digital streaming or downloading technology would be responsible for adding crappy tracks onto the end of a record. It's, it's relatively recent memory that iTunes was blamed for destroying the album format when one of the things it did was enabled you not to buy the crappy tracks that got stuck on the end of a CD.
0: And, and actually, that's the result of another industry shenanigan that backfired. I mean, back in the day, a CD album would contain maybe three, four songs that were produced on a big budget. Maybe they'd hire some, you know, hit-making producer, songwriters to come in and, and produce a couple of songs. Those are the songs that would be stagger-released as singles over the marketing period. And, and those are the songs that would be used to market a $15 CD. But the rest of the songs on the album would be produced on a more austere budget.
2: Absolutely. And the reason for this is the economics of CD distribution, where a four-track CD costs exactly the same amount of press as a 10-track or 15-track CD. It costs the same to press. It costs the same to ship. Um, and if you're going to recoup those expenses, you need a high retail price and so that you can make the production cost as small a percentage as possible of the t- total price paid by the consumer.
0: But that formula doesn't really work in the digital age because given a choice of tracks a la carte, people are going to buy the hits that they like and they know. They don't necessarily want or need to buy the rest of the CD. This
1: article says that um, Drake's album Views spans, and I quote, an obnoxious 82 minutes, unquote, as one reviewer pointed out, stretching to 20 tracks of auto-tuned navel-gazing with little in the way of tempo variation. That's pretty harsh, but... Is it more? Is it easier to do with the current way that people are producing music, this sort of um, tag team production where you've got a producer and you've got one guy doing the beats and one guy doing the, the, the bass and people writing hooks and all that? Is it easier to do that now?
2: I don't know. I mean, you could, you could argue that this is the, the kind of mass production of music that Henry Ford would have, would have appreciated. But actually thinking about this, 82 minutes is only obnoxiously long if it's 82 minutes of bad music. I've made 82 minute classical albums in the past because 82 minutes seem like the right length to make an album. And like many people invited on shows to talk about things, I have not listened to these 82 minutes of Drake's music. And I would not presume to judge it. But 82 minutes is just at the very upper limit that it's physically possible to put on a cd quite often when you get around the 82 83 minutes mark the pressing plant will make you sign a waiver to say you understand that a cd is not supposed to be more than 74 minutes and this might not play on some players uh, because they don't want you asking for a refund for your whole million unit print run but it's not a totally outlandish length for a for a physical cd even
0: right there may be legitimate artistic reasons Uh, you'd want to produce a long album with extra tracks or more tracks than average. We're used to the convention of a CD-length album, but a streaming album doesn't have to uh, abide by that constraint.
2: Yeah, I mean, it might start to look more like shenanigans if you were to divide a three-minute single into seven movements. Well, it's funny you should say that because Kirk has an example.
1: Right, and so this is actually what's been happening in classical music. Um, A number of labels have realized that There's an imbalance in streaming between classical music and popular music. If you've got a three-minute track, you get the same amount of money streaming as you do if you have one movement of a Beethoven symphony or even a 60-minute track. Um, I'll cite works by Morton Feldman. Um, I without shaming any record labels, there's a label that has a number of Feldman recordings, and, and Feldman wrote some very long works, an hour, two hours, four hours and longer. And they're releasing their recordings split into a number of tracks. So each CD has a dozen tracks, but there's no logical reason to split it. I know for a fact from discussing this with people with record labels that the reason for this is to increase streaming revenue. This, of course, assumes that millions of people are going to stream these classical albums, which I kind of doubt.
2: Well, yeah, if you're making a Feldman record, you can't afford to leave a penny on the table if you're going to make another Feldman record. And, and, and you know, who's who's participating in the BS here? Is it the label that divides an album up into kind of navigable chunks, or is it a streaming service who decides that that's what you have to do if you want to get paid? Well, this is the
1: problem. Why has this happened that um, streaming services pay the same amount regardless of the length?
2: It's an interesting question because the way that music publishing royalties are collected on physical recordings is dependent on the length of the track or the percentage of the finished recording, depending where you are. And, and the same is true for download royalties in many territories, uh, long tracks will attract a, a double royalty or more. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. No, So there's, there's no reason why you couldn't calculate streaming royalties in the same way.
1: Yeah, let's say um, up to 10 minutes, 10 to 20 minutes, 20 to 30. Because if you look at some jazz music, you'll find a lot of 15, 20 minute live tracks. Um, obviously, in classical, you're you're full of tracks that are that long.
2: Right. And then you'd really be able to tell when people were gaming the system. Because the way those rules are generally set up is it's uh, you pay the royalty for every seven minutes or part thereof. So if you found an album that was made up entirely of tracks that were seven minutes and two seconds long, you'd know they were up for something.
1: Uh Aha. And just one other thing to point out that I only learned recently, um, with streaming services like iTunes and Spotify, these companies pay what's called publishing royalties. So the publishing royalty is what goes to the songwriter or the composer. Um, In classical music, if the composer's music is still under copyright. So if they've been dead for less than 70 years, um, and in popular music, you know, the composer's generally alive. But the streaming services pay this out, which means that out of the sort of global 70% that a record label gets of the, the streaming income, they only actually get 58%. The 12% publishing royalty is something they don't see. So If you're releasing classical music, in a way you're getting penalized because you don't have to pay out that publishing royalty on your CDs.
2: So yes, this is a very strange system where the money gets collected for composers across all genres of music, but only gets paid out to people who've written music that's still in copyright. What that means effectively is that classical composers or labels are subsidizing the composers of... Of copyright music, because if I'm releasing a recording of public domain music, normally no deduction is made for the composers because the composers have been dead for hundreds of years and there's no one to pay the money to.
1: Right. And you factor that into your calculations when you're planning to release an album.
2: Exactly. Before I spend three million pounds making a recording of some Gabrielli, I make damn sure that I'm not going to have to pay any money to Gabrielli. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Okay. The other thing we wanted to talk about today is metadata. Metadata is the information that's attached to your digital music files. It tells you who performed them, the names of songs, the names of albums. If you buy music from iTunes or most other dealers, you have metadata. If you stream music from Apple Music or Spotify, you have metadata. But metadata isn't that simple. If you've ever If you've ever ripped a lot of CDs for music that really isn't mainstream, you've probably been confronted with metadata that's wrong. And this is probably how you first heard about Doug Adams through his Apple scripts for iTunes. Um, He has 400-plus scripts, and a lot of them let you move metadata around, trim it, copy it, etc.
0: Yeah, and you know, it's kind of a weird thing about digital media, or metadata about digital media, and that's that the end user is allowed to alter it, and that's so completely unapplicable to physical media
1: yeah so metadata is essential because if you didn't have metadata all you would have is track one track two track three and you'd never be able to find
0: any music and it's also kind of a clumsy way of including information that used to be included like say on an album cover or in liner notes
1: but one problem is with digital music we don't have all the information that was in the liner notes you'll get the you'll get a song name you'll get an album name you'll get a genre which may or may not correspond to the music. You'll get a release year sometimes, but you won't get composers. You won't get session dates. If you're into jazz, you won't get a list of all the players and all that. Um, Andy, I think you know a lot about metadata in part because you used to work for a very large fruit company in California.
2: (laughs) Well, that's true. I did work for a while for a fruit company in California, and I'd spent a lot of time wrangling with metadata there. And I came over time to have quite strong opinions about this. Uh, And, I now work with a metadata company called Dart Music, which is based in Nashville, which provides automated data cleanup services to labels and distributors and other music companies. And, and what we do there is we process metadata in an automated fashion to try and find out as much as we possibly can about the music, which is, of course, essential if people are going to have an enjoyable listening experience. I think one of one of the issues that has arisen since the the growth of digital music platforms is that we've come to expect that these platforms will provide us with all of the information about the music in the same way that the liner notes once did on a CD. And I, I think that this is a short sighted way of approaching the problem. It's one that's totally understandable because we are kind of used to having all that information arrive in the product but as our music listening becomes a more and more connected experience it becomes less and less important that it be inside the package and it's why uh, developments like iTunes LP and uh, digital booklets I think kind of misguided.
1: Well, the one, one problem with those is that they're fine if you're listening on your desktop computer to iTunes, but they don't transfer over to your iOS devices.
2: Right. And once upon a time, if you bought a box set, you would put the, the CD or the vinyl on the player you'd sit down with the box in front of you on your coffee table and you would read about the music while you listen to the music and that made perfect sense all the time the box was the only thing that was on your coffee table but now we have these connected devices from which we're listening to music and they contain within them the, the means to access the, the sum of all human knowledge and we have this within the remote control to our hi-fi effectively and so it it strikes me as, Kind of insane to try and package all the things you might want to know about the recording into a bunch of meta tags and to try and make those really super consistent so that we're recording the same things about every recording and make them searchable. Of course, it's really important that the data in these music stores is is accurate and it is indexed sensibly, that it is searchable, that it be as complete as possible. But there comes a point when it's no longer the retailer's responsibility to provide all of this information. And, and if, you were, if I could add one tag to the iTunes metadata, I, I wouldn't add producer. I wouldn't add recording date. I wouldn't try and list the sidemen. I just let you put a URL in it. Because if you could do that, if you could, if you could make the player pull in, information from the web instead of trying to package all of this up into the thing that you buy then the digital music listening experience would be so much richer so much more fun so you're suggesting that each track comes with a clickable link
1: and that the record labels are responsible for populating a web page someplace with the information about the recordings
2: so you could certainly link to a privately controlled resource like a, a label page. You could also look at open directories like uh, Wikipedia or Discogs. You could point to the artist website. You could point almost anywhere, and you could you could pull in you could pull in information even without a URL tag in a digital audio file. Even without that, you could very easily write a player which looked up relevant Wikipedia articles, relevant Discogs articles, and presented you with this information in an automated and browsable format.
1: This assumes that every record label is going to seed Wikipedia and Discogs, which isn't the case now. Um, As we all know, Wikipedia can be good and can be bad depending on the article. But it's true that things like music and popular culture, it tends to be strong because you get a lot of fans who who add that sort of thing. But you won't get everything. So that means that the label's responsible for seeding that.
2: Well not necessarily. Uh you could very easily have a hierarchy of resources that were looked at. You know, if you were if you were gonna code a kind of automated rich metadata service in in a player, then you could have it look for Wikipedia articles, have it look for social media accounts, have it look for artist official websites. And if none of these things are available, then maybe we're going to end up with something something more generic presented to us. But the truth is that Google has no trouble provided with a single search term presenting us with huge amounts of relevant information about almost any musical subject you can write into it. And there's no reason why a, a player couldn't present that degree of information as well. So you're saying that there
0: could be some uh, interface element of the player that searched for and displayed
2: information? Absolutely. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not even suggesting that this should become a, a really prominent part of the user interface, but it's totally possible to pull in information from a variety of sources, rather than relying on this being all crammed into the meta tags.
0: Right, so so here's the thing. In my experience with iTunes users, for example, they're interested in being, they like to be able to organize their libraries in their own idiosyncratic way sometimes. And they have to rely on track tags and file metadata, which um, sometimes is presented to them in a format that they don't particularly care for like for instance uh featured performers being part of the name or or not enough performers being listed as an artist how how does being able to access information externally of the player help users like that with library organization
2: that's a really good question and they were like i kind of have two answers to that um The featured artist question is a particularly interesting one because often featured artists are listed in track titles for contractual reasons that really have nothing to do with helping people find the music, but it's there because their agent got it in the contract. When it comes to organising your library based on metadata, different people are going to have different preferences for how they do that. What's really important is that the data that's supplied by the store is of uh, high quality and is consistent and is complete. And there are a few things that can be done to improve that. They're mostly kind of boring steps that need to be taken, but a lot of the time the data gets mangled on its way through a series of XML feeds from the label to the distributor and from the distributor to the retailer. And often that data is getting corrupted, things are getting lost, things are going missing. And when data goes missing, it's it's because the the plumbing was either done wrong or it was difficult to test and there are there are simple things that we can do to fix that if the retailers would simply publish with their delivery specifications a picture of their user interface with the pieces of information labeled with which XML tags actually were going to show up in those places, then it would be much easier to wire these things up. But they don't do that. They make it hard for us.
1: So you recently wrote an article um, entitled Metadata. Almost everything you read about classical metadata is wrong. And you're debunking the belief that metadata for classical music is different from other types of music.
2: That's right. Uh, certainly, metadata is very important in identifying any kind of music, and there are challenges which seem more prominent in classical music than in other genres of music. But these challenges are in no way unique. In in jazz, it's very common to have multiple performances of the same composition. Uh, In world music, it's very common to have the same work performed by different people and called different things in different territories. In hip-hop, it's very common to have complex collaborations by a lot of people. In jazz, it's very common to have ensembles that are made up of lots of individuals each of whom is important and which you may be searching for when you're looking for that album and if we are blinkered about saying this is a classical music problem then we understate the importance to the market of getting these things right and it is important that we get all of these things right so if it's
1: just a complex music problem, and by that I mean more than just Bob Dylan with an acoustic guitar, where there's a single artist, maybe he's written the song, and you don't have any questions. Um, if I think of a classical recording that has an orchestra, a conductor, and certain soloists, the problem with the artist tag today is that I don't want to put all that in the artist tag because that means that every single classical recording I have is going to have different artist tags because of the different combinations. So do we need multiple artist tags? Would that make it easier? Do we need collaborator tags? What what would be the easiest way? Because we're not going to rebuild this. We're too far into this game to rebuild everything. So we need to sort of graft something on to what's existing. How can we do that?
2: We can do that with smarter search. You know, the way that we format m- multiple artists listed on, on a recording tends to involve commas, spaces, ampersands, under the word and. And it really would not be difficult for the search and browse interfaces within the library applications to understand that. You know, when we when we catalogue music in the store, it understands that each of those artists is a distinct person. It's only because there's a single artist tag in the audio file that it delivers this with a single concatenated artist called Stephen Cleary, Gerald Finley, the Choir of King's College, Cambridge, and the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment, which is, you know, a snappy name.
1: <laughs> it is. I'm sure that's contributed to their success, having a name that just rolls trippingly on the tongue like that.
2: Absolutely. Well, so a lot of the things that we do at Dart Music involve making smarter use of the data that we have. It would be really, really easy for a person looking at the track listing on the back of a CD to separate the work titles from the track titles. It's just not hard for a person to do this. and If you think about it, it's really not hard for a machine to do this either because the work title is separated from the movement title by a colon, a space and a number. The work title is the same at the beginning of each movement. It would be incredibly easy for the iTunes application and store to separate these things and display them in a sensible way. Instead, what they do is they display the whole thing for every track on the album. And this means that the important bit of information, the movement title, is right at the end and often past the ellipsis at the end of the column. And... If we can't make a more intelligent system to display this data, then we could, at the very least, make sure that the UI designers understand that you need at least 250 characters to accurately identify every work. And if we just displayed longer fields, this would make these stores better.
1: Well, you can't do that on an iPhone. Um, I, I'm reminded by the fact that the iTunes store and the iTunes app both use what's called the grouping tag. Um, the grouping tag, for example, you could put Haydn Symphony Number 104, and then for each track name, you can have the name of the first movement, second movement, third movement, and fourth movement. Um, when you look at some classical recordings on the iTunes store, you see it like that, where you see uh, the the name of the work and then indented, you see the name of the movements, um, unfortunately, this doesn't come through on iTunes in the display. You can fill in the grouping tag, but you can't display it the same way as you can on the store. Um Also on iOS devices, you can't display it like that. Any idea why they've got this in the store and they haven't
2: rolled this out? This has been around for years. The grouping tag is used for things other than... Works in classical music. I think if you buy one of the monstrous box sets like the Complete U2, uh, then the grouping tag is used to identify the individual albums within that that box set, and so that there is this sort of sort of non-classical need to support this on some devices throughout the the iTunes and Apple Music ecosystem. But because many labels have not delivered this data in a particularly useful way. There are devices within the ecosystem that have not yet been forced to support it. What I will say is that uh, at Dart Music, we have the technology to automatically add works to every, every track on iTunes that should have them. And uh, Tim Cook, if you're listening, call me. We can fix this for you. You don't need the labels to deliver it. Uh, and really... Apple ought to be able to figure out how to do this for themselves. In fact, if they check back through the emails I sent when I still worked there, I may have already told them how to do it.
1: So a a lot of people tend to say that the reason Apple doesn't fix these things is they don't care or that they don't use them. I I don't think that they don't care. Um, Maybe the top executives don't listen to classical music or jazz or anything where they need more than a song name, an artist, and an album. But you would think that something this big, they would be more concerned about the better the metadata, the more they're going to sell, right?
2: That's right. And I think it would be wrong to say that they don't care. Uh, The situation is that they care about this, but they care about a lot of other things, too. And they care slightly more about the other things. And so there's always something that gets bumped ahead of this in the development queue. Certainly improving the display of classical music was on the development roadmap when I worked there. And I'm sure it's still on the development roadmap somewhere today. It just is always just over the horizon.
0: (laughs) Yeah, tomorrow's always only a day away. Uh, We have to wrap this up, Andy. Thanks for joining us. Andy Doe is, among other things, a digital music, media, and technology consultant. As we like to do every episode of the next track, Kirk and I like to report on what our next track is going to be. That is the music that each of us will be playing uh, shortly at home. I am happy to report that I finally found my CD copy of Brazil Classics Volume 1, Beleza Tropical. It's a compilation of Brazilian pop music compiled by David Byrne for his... Bop label. I've, I've loved this CD since it came out in 1989. It features some, uh, well, I'd consider groundbreaking Brazilian pop music from the 60s and 70s. It is nothing at all like the, the bossa nova sound that was also popular in the 60s. Um, this CD compilation features people like Gil Gilberto, Jorge uh, Ben-Jor, Cetano, Velozzo. Um, these are guys that borrowed heavily from American folk, American rock and even American psychedelic music to create some very, very interesting Brazilian pop music. It is called Brazil Classics Volume 1, Beleza Tropical. It's put together by David Byrne. I'm not only going to be listening to it, I'm going to be ripping it, too, because the CD has been missing in my house for months. Um, Kirk, what have you got?
1: Well, my listening today, and I'm about halfway through, so it is actually my next track when we finish recording, is Miles Davis' The Complete In A Silent Way Sessions, Now, Miles Davis in late 68, early 69, he did about six months of sessions um, from which a couple of albums um, resulted. The first was um, Fee to Kilimanjaro, and the second was In a Silent Way. In a Silent Way is an album with two tracks. Um, One's 18 minutes, one's about 20 minutes, and it's almost sort of proto-ambient jazz music. It's not the kind of music you would think that Miles Davis was composing. Um, this is a three disc set, which contains all of the sessions he did in this six month period. Again, some of them were on a a previous album. Um, some of them were on the In a Silent Way album and some were never released. So you've got, you, you've got these raw tracks that are, they sound very live because they were, they were improvisations. Um, the two tracks on the In a Silent Way album were actually edits. They were taking bits and the producer Tio Macero cut and pasted them, and in fact, the the first side of the album is a track called "Shh," slash peaceful, slash "Shh," and the first and the third segments are exactly the same, but it works. Um, so, what's really interesting about this is this is the sort of transitional period between Miles Davis with his sort of standard quintet playing standard jazz and Bitches Brew, which would come out, which he would record shortly after in in 1969. Um, The cast on this album is just, listen to these names, other than Miles Davis. You've got Wayne Shorter, John McLaughlin, Chick Corea, Herbie Hancock, Joe Zawinol, Dave Holland, Tony Williams, Jack DeJohnette, and Joe Chambers. I mean, these are all Hall of Fame jazz musicians. Yet a lot of this a lot of these recordings are very understated. It's we're just gonna lay down a groove here and we're gonna play this groove for twenty minutes or twenty-five minutes. And it was experimental and Miles Davis never did the same thing again because he went on to Bitches Brew and, and created fusion. Um but this is an album I keep coming back to, both the original album release version and this expanded three C D version. It's the complete in a silent way sessions by Miles Davis.
0: This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.